and to understand that the love that holds us is the love that saved us, it's the love that keeps us, and the love that will preserve us. If you were to say which is the greatest attribute of God, or you were to try to determine which is the great attribute, uh, many have, would have various opinions about that. Some would say the greatest attribute, attribute of God is God's love. Uh, some would say that it may be His wrath. Uh, but we need to understand that when we consider God's attributes, we are considering something that only God possesses. And God's greatest attribute, if you were to really boil this all down, is his holiness. And it's not the popular attribute because we often think, well, I like God because of he loves me. And we rejoice in that. We just sang a song, relentless love. Aren't we glad that his love is relentless? It doesn't end. But we have to keep in mind that we are dealing with a holy God. We are dealing with a God that is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, in whom there is no wrong. Uh, there is never a wrong decision. There is never a wrong uh, action that is taken. God is perfectly holy. Uh, sin can come nowhere near him. He can produce no sin. So as we think about a holy God, it immediately takes us to consider uh, the glory of God. And we've talked about God's glory, but our text this morning is specifically going to deal with a rather uh, deep uh, thought process that John gives us in John 13, uh, verses 31 and 32. Uh, this will be another one of those messages that we spend a lot of time considering one verse, and then we, over the next uh, couple of weeks, we will be dealing with this. But I want you to notice John 13, verses 31 and 32. The Bible tells us, therefore, when he was gone out, that's Judas, of course, we've been dealing with that subject, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. I'm not sure there are two verses anywhere in Scripture that mention the word glory or glorified more than those two verses. But I want you to specifically mark the expression in verse 31. The Bible says that God is glorified in him. God is glorified in him. Judas, of course, has now exited this meeting or this gathering of the disciples. We witnessed in this gathering the washing of the disciples' feet by Jesus. Jesus begins to announce his betrayal. He has identified there is a man among you, uh, the disciples, who is going to betray me. Uh, remember, the disciples, the remaining 11, are still not 100% sure, or maybe you don't even have an idea that it's Judas, because Judas had given no reason to not be trusted. So what we see happening here is we see uh, Judas has now gone out. The Bible tells us that Satan entered into him, John 12, verse 27, and Jesus had said, what thou doest, do it quickly. So we know now Judas is being uh, led completely and entirely 
uh, by Satan himself. He, is, he has been given over to Satan, and what, means, what that means now is Judas is going to do everything his wicked heart desires to do. But we also know that everything that Judas is doing is not against what God had already determined would be done beforehand. You'll recall in our study, as we've been going through the book of John, all the way back in John 6, verses 70 and 71, uh, Jesus had already mentioned about there being a devil among them. Back in John 6, verses 70 and 71, the Bible tells us, Jesus answered them, have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil. He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Again, Jesus had already known the identity of Judas. So now we have Christ alone with his disciples. He is, he is now beginning to talk more freely about what is getting ready to happen. Remember, Jesus has been speaking to them. Uh, we'll use the word in steps. He's been giving them what they were able to bear, what they were able to handle. And now he begins to talk more about what's coming. He begins to talk about, he'll begin to talk about his suffering. He'll begin to speak about his coming death. He'll even begin to instruct them about his ascension, which is coming. Jesus is now beginning to tell them even about their own future. He's beginning to tell them that this is what is going to uh, characterize your lives after I'm gone. Now, before we continue with that narrative, I want us to turn quickly over to Acts chapter number one, and I want to just draw our attention to something here that'll help us as we deal with these verses this morning. Acts chapter number one, and look with me at verses 15 through 20. Now, we're fast forwarding in the disciples' age, actually, or obviously, because we're, we're looking ahead now to the time when Judas is replaced by a man named Matthias. But I want us to see this because I want you to see that there's, there's a principle here and some teachings we need to see. Acts 1 verse 15, the Bible says, and in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about 120. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, please take note of that, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue, a celadama, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate and let no man dwell therein and his bishopric let another take. As the disciples were moving to add a, another 12th disciple, notice that what entered into their thought process is what had happened with Judas. Not because they had heard by uh, word of mouth, but because the Bible had declared or the scriptures had declared to them that this is what was predetermined to happen before it ever did. Judas had done what he had done to Jesus by the ordination or the preordination of God. 
So what Jesus is now continuing to say in John 13 is he's telling them, everything I'm getting ready to tell you is of the same principle. It is all foreordained by God. Right? So Jesus, what he's getting ready to tell his disciples now, he begins to get into more about what is getting ready to happen. Why verse 31 and 32 are so important is because Jesus shows ultimately the purpose of the cross. All right? The purpose of the cross was not just the salvation of sinners. The purpose of the cross was the glorification of Jesus Christ. That Christ would be glorified and that God would be glorified in what Christ is going to do. In other words, if we just look at the cross as a means to our end or a means to that we get to experience eternal life in a place called heaven, we're missing what Jesus begins with. The first thing he tells them about what's happening is not about man's salvation, but it's about his own glory. When we talk about the glorification of Christ, we are not talking about a light subject. We're not talking about something that we can just kind of read and just assume, I understand. I will tell you, verses 31 and 32 are very difficult when you just read them straight through and you consider what's being said here. Now, why it's important that I pointed to Judas again? Because the Bible mentions, therefore, when he was gone out. It mentions that right before it tells us about the glory and the purpose of Jesus Christ. Judas was a part of what is getting ready to take place. Now, the disciples still don't fully understand all the connection yet. Remember, they don't know that Judas is the betrayer. Yet Jesus begins to speak now to the 11 remaining things that he did not say when Judas was in their presence. Now, again, we might say, is that a coincidence? Is that, just, is that on purpose? I believe, biblically speaking, it was on purpose. Jesus is now beginning to say more than he has said up to this point. Notice again, now is the Son of Man glorified. That is, what this means is the time has come that the Son, that's Jesus, will immediately be glorified by accomplishing the work which his Father gave him to do. In other words, the cross was an act of God's glory being seen. Now we know that because in John 17, if you'll turn there, verses 1 through 4, we see Jesus' prayer, and some have labeled this uh, Jesus' prayer for himself. But notice what he says in John 17, verses 1 through 4, actually 1 through 5. The Bible says, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Look what he says. Glorify thy Son that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world 
was. Jesus seems to pray here as if he is already standing before the Father. He, he speaks as with, with an authority that of what's getting ready to come and what's getting ready to happen is for his glory and for the glory of the Father. Remember, Jesus did say, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. But folks, we need to get this. That was not the chief aim of Christ. Now, this is what makes people mad. Man-centered evangelism, man-centered gospel always elevates the sinner and lowers the glory of Christ. Now, that matters because if we believe that Jesus Christ's chief aim, the reason exclusively or the main reason he came was to save sinners, we're missing what Jesus himself declares in his own prayer to his Father. His prayer to the Father was not, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy Son, or it doesn't even say, save sinners. He says, glorify thy Son, that through my glorification, I will glorify you, the Father. As I said, this is not a light thought. Because we as humans think, well, Christ came to save sinners. That was his chief aim. Now, make no mistake, it was an objective. And it is through his finished work that through salvation, all right, through salvation, millions of people have glorified the Father through the Son. Okay? We glorify God by our salvation in Christ. The purpose was not just to save you from hell. The purpose is that Christ would glorify the Father and that Christ would glorify himself. Now, we go back and we read our text in John 13. That phrase, God is glorified in him. God the Father is glorified in him, the Son. This word, this remarkable word, glorified, Jesus is not speaking about what appears to be a triumphant event. He is speaking about the cross. Jesus is saying that through his own death, the Father would be glorified. Through his own death, he would be glorified. Jesus Christ never considered himself one time, now get this, to be a martyr. Nor did he ever consider the cross to be disgraceful. Now, humanly speaking, there was no greater disgrace than to be crucified upon a cross. Jesus never once felt disgraced to be on that cross, that place of shame. In other words, Jesus never said, I, of all people, should not be on such a disgraceful place as hanging upon an old Roman rugged cross. There's nothing like this that I know of anywhere in the other Gospels. John, in those two verses, 31 and 32, says things that I do not believe you can find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. doesn't mean they don't have value, but John puts this in a way that the other Gospels don't put it. God is glorified in him. John is giving us a kind of a, 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 a picture into a divine viewpoint of things. 
Folks, we are limited in what we can see. Okay, our eyes, uh, we, are, we, we have a, a limited viewpoint. We only see things truly through humanity. John, through the inspired word of God, is giving us a divine viewpoint. A, a viewpoint that says, here's how you see it, but here's how I see it. Is everybody following? Divine viewpoint often varies from our viewpoint. Sadly, what a lot of times we do is we think our viewpoint is more important than God's viewpoint, which man's viewpoint says, no, no, no. Why Jesus go to the cross? He went to the cross to die for sinners. Ultimately, no, the divine viewpoint is this. Jesus Christ went to the cross primarily to glorify himself and that through his own glory, the father was glorified. That's the primary reason. Now, again, aren't you glad we're part of, we're part of the, salvation, the salvation of sinners? We're, we're glad to say, listen, because Jesus Christ did what he did, I am in Christ today. But it seems strange that Jesus would talk about glorifying and glorified and glorification as he begins now to contemplate and tell his disciples about his own death on a place of shame to the human perspective. No human passed by the cross and said, now that's a great man hanging upon that cross. And nobody passed by as a man was being executed on, that, those, on those beams of wood and said, now that must be a good man. No, what everybody saw from a human viewpoint was that man deserves everything that he's getting, right? That's what he, that's what he deserves. The divine viewpoint is, that is my son, in whom I am well pleased, even as I pour out my full wrath on my son, my son is glorified, and through his glorification, I, the Father, am glorified. Divine viewpoint, human viewpoint, two different sides. So it seems strange, considering the circumstances, Jesus begins talking about death, his death being glory. Again, understand the position and the perspective of the disciples. They did not have the completion of the story that you and I have. They did not have the New Testament to see the fulfillment. Jesus is speaking these things and he's speaking in real time. We look at everything from a viewpoint of the completed, preserved, inspired word of God, and we look back and we, we view it and we see the beginning, we see the ending, we see the middle. That's why I believe however much light is shined upon a man, a man is held responsible for the light that's been revealed to him. You and I have the completed word of God. We are held accountable and responsible for what we know and what we see. That's why it is impossible for a man who, re who refuses to repent and refuses to acknowledge Christ. He is without excuse because the light of the gospel has shined so brightly and we have the completed copy of God's word. So these words, although they're strange from the human perspective, they were before Jesus would go and experience the work of a redeemer. He would suffer deep sufferings. He would come under heavy accusations. He would be condemned to death. He would be found guilty by a sham trial. He would find himself experiencing the agonies of a shameful death and being placed in a borrowed tomb. From man's perspective, there was no glory in that. From God's perspective, all the glory is being seen. 
So what is Jesus saying? What is about to happen is my glory, and through my glory, God the Father will be glorified. I love what Spurgeon said about the glory of God. He said, there is no glory in God, but what is also in Christ. Whatever God is, Christ is. That's biblical wisdom. Whatever God is, Christ is. So as we think about this, let's answer the question. How was Christ's death on the cross his glorification? Well, first of all, notice he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. He doesn't say the Son of Man will be glorified. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Jesus Christ is he is incarnate right now as he speaks these words. He is in human form, never ceasing to be God. Yet he speaks of being glorified now. Glorified not only in his person, but glorified on the cross. So let's dig deeper. How is he glorified? First of all, he performed the greatest work that's ever been performed in human history. He performed the work of redemption. There has been no greater work in the universe ever seen nor ever will be seen. The greatest work that a man has ever done in his humanity is Jesus Christ's work upon the cross. And by the way, it's important to acknowledge that Jesus Christ was in his humanity on the cross. If you deny his humanity, you are denying God. Jesus Christ's humanity matters because he is acting as a representative of the human race, taking on the shame that's associated with the human sinner. He's, a, he's not just a, a representation. He is, he is literally, he is, he is showing himself to be taking the place of. And again, how can that be glorifying to be taking the place of a sinner? At this time, the disciples were waiting for the cross. Again, they weren't looking towards it because they, they still don't fully understand what's coming. We're looking back at it. We have human perspective, but we also have a divine perspective. How do we have a divine perspective? Because we have the divinely inspired word of God. I can know the mind of God because I have the Bible, right? I, I don't have to guess what God thinks about the Son. Jesus' own words are, that if God is glorified in me, I'm glorifying myself and vice versa. What God, wherever God is, Christ is. Why? Because Christ is God. So first of all, we see that it was the Son of God, Jesus as the incarnate, who was glorified on the cross by performing the greatest work. Number two, because what Jesus did on the cross, we don't often think about this, is he reversed what the first Adam did. What did the first Adam do? The first Adam, we know the story of Adam and Eve. And by the way, it's not a cute story to tell your kids about. It, what you see in Adam and Eve is the literal fall of man, which points to the reality of this glory that Jesus is talking about. You know, and you can argue about whether it was an apple or a pear or whatever. You're missing the point. That doesn't matter. The heart of the fall was the disobedience of Adam. 
And in Adam, all men die. So you and I have a stake in what Adam did. So what Jesus did is he reversed the conduct of Adam. Now, he didn't make sin go away. But what would the Bible say Adam was? Adam was disobedient unto death. Jesus referred to as the second Adam or the last Adam is referred to biblically as being obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So here's the point. The glory of man is to glorify God. All right, the glory of man is to glorify God. That is man's glory. We are to glorify God. Our only glory is in Christ. Man was never more, or God rather, was never more glorified. God the Father was never more glorified than when his own incarnate son, Jesus Christ, laid down his life in submission to the command of his Father. So what, when we read passages like we read a while back in John 10, verses 17 through 18, when Jesus said this, we were studying it at the time, and now we're seeing more and more of the perspective. Jesus says these, these words, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. The commandment have I received of my Father. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he was reversing the curse of the conduct of Adam. No cross You and I are still in Adam and the curse still applies spiritually speaking. Which means I die and I'm eternally separated from Christ without ever any hope of redemption. Now Jesus Christ reversed the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, Jesus in his submission, in his human nature, glorified his Father. And in that nature, he glorified himself. Number three, how Christ's death on the cross was his glorification. Through the cross, and this is important, by his death, by his death on the cross, destroyed him who had the power of death. Who is whom? Satan. Jesus Christ already destroyed Satan. Satan is already destroyed, spiritually speaking. He has no power over Jesus Christ. He has no power over Christ's people. He should have no leverage in your life or in my life. He should never be allowed to deceive you. Because what Jesus Christ did is He destroyed Satan. 
not most of them, all of them. We live victorious because the power of death. In Hebrews chapter number 2, beginning in verses 14 and then verse 15, we, we read Hebrews 1, of course, this morning, but Hebrews 2, later on in that particular chapter, down in verses 14 and 15, it refers to this. The Bible tells us Jesus is pictured here as a merciful high priest. Uh, and by the way, we're, we're, we're moving towards the great possibility that the next study on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock is going to be the book of Hebrews. So just pray about that. That's the direction I'm moving us. But I want you to look at this. For as much, verse 14 of Hebrews 2, then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That's humanity. That through death, death in his incarnate state, he might destroy him, that Satan that had the power of death, that is the devil. He identifies him, this is who was destroyed by Christ in his humanity when he died upon the cross. And delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. By the death of Satan, Jesus' people were delivered. You see it? Delivered. Not will be delivered. They are delivered. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. Means he didn't go to the cross in an angelic form. But he took on him the seed of Abraham. That tells us that Jesus was in his humanity when he hung upon the cross. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. What an achievement. Jesus Christ, in the likeness of sinful man's flesh, accomplished the defeat of he who held the keys to death, Satan. Again, we're dealing with how is Christ's death on the cross his glorification. Number four. At the cross, the ransom price was paid. Let's dispel the nasty rumor. Christ did not pay a ransom of any sort to Satan. Satan didn't receive anything. In other words, Satan was not the holder of the key. Jesus was not doing anything to appease Satan. He was doing it to be in obedience to his father, which he always did. This idea that Satan said, if you want your people to have power over death and you're going to have to pay me with your life is heresy. And it's out there. Jesus didn't pay a ransom to his enemy, the devil. He paid the ransom price by his own giving of himself for the elect of God or those that God the Father had given him. So the glory for the Son of Man was this. He could do nothing else in the realm of his humanity 
than what the Father had given him to do. And through his suffering and through his shame, the Bible says he would bring many sons unto glory. That verse, bringing many sons unto glory, now takes on a whole other meaning. Bringing sons into that same glory. The work that he did was a work of glorifying himself. How did he glorify himself? He was a willing sufferer. The price was paid. Jesus Christ paid it with joy. Hebrews 12 tells us. He wasn't led. He wasn't driven as some kind of an unwilling lamb to the slaughter. He endured the cross, endured the shame, and was not offended until the wrath and the justice of God was fully satisfied. I began by saying God is holy. That's his most important attribute because when Jesus Christ cried, it is finished, what he was saying is the penalty and the payment has been made to a holy, righteous, just God. A holy God. God is holy. The glory in which he's talking about is a holy God. And fifth, by the virtue of what Christ did on the cross, he acquired the glory of being a mediator. What is a mediator? A mediator is one that acts on behalf of another. We looked at John 17, the first parts of that chapter. Go back to John 17 again and look at verses 20 through 26. John 17, verses 20 through 26. And again, notice his words. Now, Jesus in John 17 has three prayers. If you take notes, you outline your Bible, this will help you. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his, his disciples. It's important to note this. And in verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for believers. Okay? You and I are not disciples in the purest sense of the word disciple. You are not one of the 12. Now, we use terms like discipleship. We use words like being a disciple of Christ. But contextually, there are things Jesus says to the disciples that he wasn't saying to you. He wasn't saying to me. When, for example, when Jesus said, they're going to put you out of the synagogue, he didn't mean every believer. Odds are, and I'm not trying to be cute, you and I are never going to be thrown out of a synagogue for preaching Christ. Okay? What he was telling them is you will be thrown out of the synagogue because you're one of my disciples. So it's important to understand who Jesus is praying for at the time. So in verses 20 through 26, he's praying for believers, those who are not of those initial 12 or disciples of the time. He says this, neither pray I for these alone. That's a reference back to the disciples he's praying for in verses 6 through 19. But for them also which shall believe on me through their word. In other words, the people who believe on me through the words of the disciples, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we believe the gospel based upon their words and what they have said, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Now watch this. And the glory which thou gavest me, are you watching? I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. 
I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. Here's the mediator, okay? Here's where he's announcing that. That they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, that these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. This mediator is now a glorified, in his humanity and in his godliness, is at the right hand of the Father where he came from. As that mediator... The Bible tells us Christ has been given a name that is above every name. When you read Philippians chapter 2, let's turn there, Philippians chapter 2, and look at what Jesus now says. We've, we've, we've read these verses and we've seen them, but Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11, Paul writes about the name of Jesus. He writes about who he is. He says in verse 9 of Philippians 2, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that ties directly into John 13, verses 31 and 32 of what Jesus was saying. That this name, the name of Jesus, that every tongue that confesses Jesus Christ is Lord, confesses him to the glory of God the Father. Every sinner that repents and believes the gospel of Jesus Christ is to the glory of God to the Father. This name is unlike any other name. Jesus Christ, his own glory, and we see it at the cross, we see it in what he's accomplished, we see it in these five things, leads us to come back to this statement. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. That picture, that theme, that principle, no human pen can ever begin to describe what's really being taught here. If I were to write a book on verses 31 and 32, I would do it no justice. If I read John 13, 31, 32, realizing that the pen, the book is penned by a divine author, then I realize that's the only way I'm ever going to understand the glory of Jesus Christ. You realize every time preachers try to dissect, they try to, by way of an exposition, by way of a sermon, by way of a message, they are trying to bring us into a place where we can understand from a human perspective what Jesus was saying. And what I'm telling you today is we can only understand this from the divine viewpoint of what God is saying. In other words, this 
point of God being glorified in him, the conclusion we can come to is we can take God at his word. You know, one of the simplest things you and I will ever do as believers is take God at his word. There are passages in this book you and I will never fully understand because the Holy Spirit's not going to give us complete full understanding of all until we later one day, the Bible says, we will behold his glory. Often we talk about seeing the face of Jesus. We talk about seeing him. But do you realize that the next time, or the first time rather, really correct that, the first time you see him face to face, you're not just going to be looking at humanity. You're going to be beholding his glory. Now, describe that in human pen, what it means to behold his glory. Human pen can't write it. Human pen can't say, well, here's what it's going to... Wait a minute. Well, the Bible says, I'm going to be like him. I'm going to see him as he... Exactly. You're going to see him through non-sinful eyes. Which means you're going to see him not from the human perspective, you're going to see him from the divine perspective. Pretty remarkable, isn't it? If I just walk by a cross of wood, and even if I walk into a church building like ours and I look up at the cross, I just see it from a human perspective. But do you know even the saving of a soul requires a divine perspective? You think that acknowledgement of your sin just came because you realized how wicked of a person you are? No, that came from a divine perspective that the Holy Spirit convicted you that you needed that Savior on that cross. That your your need for Him, you're no longer concerned about you, you're concerned about who He is. We think about the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross, think about it this way, it was not only the basis of our salvation and not only the glorification of Jesus Christ himself, but the cross was the greatest and brightest revelation of the glory of God. In other words, if you want to see God's glory, look to the cross, not the beams of wood. Look to the cross, the man upon the cross. That's the difference. Some people look at the cross and they just see two beams of wood. But every attribute of God, every attribute of God and his deity was magnified at Calvary. Remember, I started off by saying, which is God's greatest attribute? His love, his wrath, his... But I said, God is holy. The holiness of God is the glory of God. If God isn't holy, there is no glory. Now again, that's a deep well. Because we look at everything from our perspective. And we say, man, I see God, I see Christ, I understand it all, I got it. There's so much... Even when we looked at a cross, we're not seeing it. And it's only through the perspective of taking Jesus Christ at his word. Now, we've only pretty much dealt with verse 31. And of course, next week, we'll, we'll have to come back to this the following week. 
But I want us to meditate on that. I want you to, I want you to take John 13, 31 and just think about it because we haven't even gotten to verse 32, which they kind of ties them all together, but there's still more. But Jesus, by dying for his people, raising from the grave, ascending up into heaven, he is declared now to be the son of God, which means he has all power and all glory. God is glorified in him. I want us to leave with this thought this morning that the glory of God is more perfectly revealed in redemption than anywhere else. What was on display when Jesus died on the cross was his wisdom, his power, his truth, his faithfulness, his justice, his holiness, his love, his grace, his mercy. They're all glorified. The glory of God is his attributes. It's all that he is. Let's finish with Colossians 1. And I, I hope this will encourage you as you go because this, I read this early this morning. I, this was not intended to even be part of this today. But I want to leave this, and we'll kind of leave this. We haven't been doing these benediction per, thing, per se, but I want to leave this with you. Colossians 1 verse 21 Paul, as he writes to the church at Colossae about Christ, he declares him to be the hope of glory. He says in verse 21, he says, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. Which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. This final verse is pretty much Paul's mission statement. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. I began with a Spurgeon quote. Let me leave you with one more. He says, and if there is any glory, any praise resulting from the work which we achieve, let us be careful to lay it all at the Redeemer's feet. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed. Father, as we come before you and we leave this time of worship together, I truly pray that this is not the end of our worship. Father, that you will continue to speak and to guide us. Lord, there is so much truth that we still did not even begin to uncover today. Lord, I pray that we would never just look at 
what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross is something so simple that anyone could have accomplished it. Lord, may we realize the truth of your word speaks so clearly to the contrary. The work that Christ did, this act of glory, Jesus Christ is our only hope of glory. And Lord, I pray that as you continue to guide us and instruct us and teach us that the Holy Spirit will give us understanding as we are able to bear it. Father, we pray that for the message of the gospel as it goes out and is preached, not only from this pulpit, but through our lives and through our testimonies and through our opportunities to speak the name of Christ, that we would never preach or speak about Christ without remembering his glory. And remember that the glory in which he accomplished was the glory of his father. Those thoughts cannot be separated. Father, may we leave here today well nourished from your word. Lord, understanding that this, this meal alone will not sustain us. Lord, we need to be fed every single day. Father, go with us now. Lord, may our lives reflect the change that has taken place. Lord, not so that man may applaud us, not so man may be impressed with us, but that we might reflect the glory of Jesus Christ in everything that we say and do. Lord, we ask now you dismiss us with thy blessing. Lord, give us a week thinking and proclaiming the glorious gospel of Christ. Bring us back Wednesday. Lord, ready to hear from you. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.